to another conversation in anthropology at Deakin, a podcast where we talk about life, the universe, and anthropology. Each episode, a few of us from Deakin sit down with a visiting fellow anthropologist to talk about their work, about the state of the discipline, and what anthropology has to tell us in the 21st century. I'm Tim Neal, I'm a research fellow at the Alfred Deakin Institute, and I'm here with uh, David Border-Giles and Sabra Thorner have a conversation about the anthropology of waste. So I don't know if you could uh, start by telling us a little bit about what you're going to speak about in the seminar today. Yeah, um, that's the sound of me rubbing my hands together greatly. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, the talk is entitled uh, Towards an Anthropology of Abject Economies. Uh, and the main, the main point of what I'm going to talk about is to uh, A, get us to think more about uh, about waste in general, you know, get us to think about uh, economic anthropology because that has become a fairly sort of esoteric part of anthropology and what we need to be doing uh, is talking about uh, economies, you know, in this era in which uh, the market seems to have, you know, uh, dominance over all of our economic discourses. We need to be thinking in more diverse ways about economies and so I think economic anthropology has a really key role to play and I think questions of waste and surplus have a key role to play in that because waste is this substance that in principle is not valued and yet uh, continues to exist. So we, we need to ask ourselves what sorts of uh, alternative economies are there out there? And I think anthropologists are particularly good at that. Uh, and along with that, the other, the other question is, you know, what new sorts of uh, sociality, what new sorts of... of politics are made possible by those waste economies. Mm. I wonder if we could start by you defining what you mean by abject economies in the title of your talk, Mm. Um, and also why it comes under this subset of alternative economies and how it might relate to other kinds of alternative economies. So Mm -hmm. when I use the phrase alternative economies, I'm thinking of a knowledge economy, right? Not the exchange Mm -hmm. of goods, Mm -hmm. but the movement of knowledge. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if you could just define, like as we're defining terms, define abject economies for the purposes of our listeners and how it relates to other alternative economies. And I'm using air quotes here. (laughs) (laughs) So the word abject uh, is pretty important for me because it, it, the experience of abjection, and I, I, I draw on uh, Julia Kristeva a lot, who is a theorist uh, who writes about the experience of abjection, um, you know, existentially. Uh, and abjection is uh, sort of the experience of these moments where meaning breaks down. And so you have these very visceral uh, material realities that don't have a place in our. Uh, in our culture, or if, if they have a place, it's it's a way, you know, the, it's the experience of, ugh, it's the experience of the corpse or the skin on the top of the milk, um, it's, it's the experience of all these things that that just sort of, uh, that don't fit well in our systems for understanding the world. Uh, and, and so we respond to that with revulsion. So, I mean... You know, maybe it's just because I've always been interested in the the dirty and the you know there's a, a six year old boy in me uh, who really likes the yucky. But uh, it, you know, Chris Davey, uh talks about the abject because it tells us something about the the systems that we have for making sense of the world. The thing that sits outside of our 
sense of order, the thing that's beyond the pale, that tells us a lot about what we value, that tells us a lot about the way we order things. Um, so in addition to this sort of six-year-old interest in the yuck, in the, in the gross and the nasty, uh, I'm also interested in what the abject can tell us about how we value things, not just economically. You know, the, the abject is really an affective experience. It's about more than anything else that lives in your gut, it says yuck. Um, but it's both, uh, it's both in your gut and it's, uh, it's in your language, it's semiotic. Um, so, as she says, the, the abject is where meaning breaks down. So, uh, I'm interested in all things abject, but then what I want to know is how does that constitute uh, our economies? So I've done a lot of research with dumpster divers. Uh, I've done a fair amount of research with squatters. I've done a lot of work with uh, homeless and shelterless folks. Uh, and all of the, these people are living, breathing, and moving in a realm uh, that would be perceived to be abject, you know, by uh, sort of prevailing systems of thought. Uh, and lots of those people experience the same prejudices. If you're dumpster diving, or if you're homeless, or if you're squatting, uh, there's a you know there's sort of a mainstream response to you, which is ugh, which is yuck, which is fear of disease and fear of criminality. So it's this affective feeling uh, that segregates you and that segregates your material life, and yet those material lives persist. You you know uh, you have to exchange goods, you have to eat, you have to find shelter, you need to circulate uh, useful things in your life, use values. Uh, so you have a kind of economy that you live in, but it's segregated from the prevailing economies by that affective barrier, that blah, that, um, uh, that sense of disgust or revulsion or fear uh, of disease and fear of criminality. So an abject economy for me is any economy that is both made possible and necessary by these expulsions from the mainstream market economy. Mm -hmm. So I'm not an expert on Kristeva's work. Mm -hmm. um, I know of it, but I'm not an expert of it. And I wonder how it's related to Mary Douglas and Manor Out of Place, mm -hmm. which I know that you've cited in some of your yep. online writing. Yeah, so absolutely. maybe that's that's a double-barreled question. Maybe that's something yep. that you could tackle. And, and that's precisely the answer to Tim's question. Oh, okay. Dirty uh, is a structural category, you know. And so Julie Christave is explicitly drawing from Mary Douglas. And Mary Douglas is famous for having said, uh, dirt is simply matter out of place. You know, there's nothing inherent about dirt that makes it dirty. What makes dirt dirty uh, is the way we structure or order our systems of meaning. So the classic example is that hair on your head is not dirty. Hair in your soup is dirty. Mm. Feet on the floor are not dirty. Feet on the table are dirty. You know, there are all of these ways in which something uh, becomes dirty by transgressing a boundary. Uh, so Mary Douglas's uh, definition of dirt is structural in that sense um, and the same thing is true of all of the things that I've looked at too you know, dumpster diving for food is profoundly dirty in Mary Douglas's sense, um, but there's nothing nasty about it, I mean if you've ever been dumpstering in a, in a, a good compost dumpster, it's actually, it, it's actually really appetising 
is everything that ends up in the compost dumpster is uh, it's too ripe to leave on the shelf for very long, which means it's perfectly ripe. Um, so one of the one of the people I work with told a story about finding the perfect peach, and she pulled it out, out of the dumpster. And normally she waits to wash it off when she gets home, but um, it was just perfectly ripe. Had to be eaten then. The skin slipped right off. She said, uh, and it was the best peach that she'd ever had. Uh, but it's out of place because she's removed it from the dumpster where it's supposed to be enclaved, uh, segregated, tucked away, never to be seen of, uh, seen or heard of again. So, for Mary Douglas, dirt is a, a structural question, uh, and Julie Christave is explicitly drawing on that. But then she's asking what feelings, what affects are connected to that structural experience, um, and how do they police those structures? Uh, so, I mean, filthy is, is a wonderful word, and it describes much, a much more visceral material reality. And sometimes dumpsters are filthy, and sometimes they're not. Uh, but dumpsters are always dirty. Yeah, I was thinking about your work this morning when uh, I took some milk out of the fridge <laughs> and uh, did that thing that you do where you look at the label of the mm-hmm. due date. Mm-hmm saw the due date had passed, mm-hmm. but then thought, well, I will trust my senses, and I smelled the milk, and the mm-hmm. milk smelled fine, and I thought, so I tr- tried it, and it was fine. I mm-hmm. thought this is a, an example not only of, of this abjectness, because mm-hmm. it's something, as you said, Chris David brings up about milk, but also mm-hmm. use value versus exchange value. Mm-hmm. At that moment, that milk has, still has use value, mm-hmm. like the dumpster diving food, yep. but its exchange value has vanished. Yep. Uh, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about... Um, just thinking of that, this uh, this relationship of excess to capital uh, mm-hmm. is uh, that use value. How is it taken up by capital? Does it escape capitalism? Mm-hmm. How, like when we think about um, dumpster diving, is this uh, is 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 capital still present, mm-hmm. or are we evading it? Yeah. Oh, I think I've got there. There are three different pieces to this. Right. Uh, you know, it's all about how does capitalism make value uh, and then what happens to the material stuff afterwards. In a way, the material stuff is still important, um, but it's less important than the exchange value. It's less, less, less important than the, the money that capital can make. If it's more profitable to throw it away, away it goes, never to be seen or, seen or heard of again. Um, if there's a way to recoup some value from it, in a different format, uh, then the value is recouped. Um, but also, it in a way the value is recouped by precisely by locking it away. You know, otherwise they wouldn't lock the dumpsters up. Uh, you know, otherwise the grocery store would take all of its uh, day-old bread and its perfectly ripe produce and just pop them out on the front stoop so people could take it. Mm. But they don't. They throw it away. Often they lock up the dumpsters. Occasionally they prosecute people for dumpster diving. So there's something important about keeping it tucked away too. So, so there are a couple of answers to your question. Uh, first of all, uh, capitalism makes value by throwing things away. It creates value in one place by devaluing other things. Value is always a comparison. You know, and the, the use-by date is a fantastic example the more accelerated the use-by date can be, to a certain extent, the faster we'll buy milk. 
the faster we'll bond whatever whatever runs out. In the, and uh, you know, and so it, at a certain illogical extreme, it gets to the point where they're putting things on the shelf uh, just to take them off, uh, and that churning of value keeps it shopping. Uh, and so in that, in that sense, the material left over is secondary to the amount of money they can uh, they can produce by getting us to keep buying milk over and over again. Um, now that said, there is still use value in the things that end up in the dumpster. And so there are lots of ways in which that use value can be turned into profit again. Uh, and it really just depends if it's profitable enough. You know, it's, it's always a cost or loss comparison. Uh, so there's um, a range of ways in which I think capitalism is starting to pay attention to waste uh, in, you know, in the 21st century. You know, we've got this sort of growing kind of ecological uh, consciousness in capitalism itself. And so we get grocery stores that are, instead of throwing their food away, they're still taking it off the shelf. Um, they're still trashing it in a way that they're composting it or they're using it to create energy. They're putting it through anaerobic digesters and then they, they burn the methane for, for energy. Um, and then we have secondary economies, so the grocery store might sell its leftovers in bulk to, um, uh, you know, there's a growing number of places that sell cheap, ugly produce. You know, so that's a way of recouping the money. Mm -hmm. And even if the grocery store doesn't sell it, a lot of that food ends up circulating in these kind of non-market secondary economies as soup kitchens, as food banks. Uh, and so it's not a direct profit to the supermarket, but it still serves a function in the larger economy which upholds our basic uh, market system. So there's still something profitable about donating it to. Um, so on the one hand, uh, the material doesn't matter if they can just keep making, uh, making money, making exchange value. On the other hand, there is material use value that can be recouped and made profitable. But in the way, the thing I'm most interested in is this third spot third space uh, in which it's not recouped uh, but it's important for it to stay locked up and that's what I've been calling abject capital uh, because it still has this use value and it's important that that use value be kept off the market uh, and so that, that has to have the effect of propping up uh, the exchange value of what's left on the shelf. You know, it's a, it's a kind of manufactured scarcity. When we, in Australia, throw away... Uh, it's estimated to be about 20% of our food without being eaten. Um, in the United States, it's estimate, estimated to be about 25% of the, the food that they make before it's even spoiled. Uh, when we throw away that stuff that still has use value, keeps us shopping, uh, and, and when, it, when it's enclaved... In a way, it still serves the function of a commodity. It still serves the function of producing exchange value, mm. but from the dumpster. So that's this very particular kind of uh, ex-commodity that I've been calling abject capital. It's still capital because it's still producing value, but it's abject because it's got this kind of ambiguous, locked-away quality to it. Well, can I interject here too? And, and this is, I hope this is a direct follow on if I'm mm -hmm. following you, in fact. Mm -hmm. um, because one of the things that was emerging from your initial remarks for me and throughout your online writing is about 
this sort of undercurrent that what we throw away doesn't have value on the first mm-hmm. layer of it. But in fact, what we mm-hmm. throw away has a lot of value. Mm-hmm. And it becomes a commodity. I had never thought about it in the way that you just said, mm-hmm. which is has got to be one of your interventions in the field of anthropology, which hopefully we can get to before mm-hmm. the end of this conversation. <laughs> but I'm also thinking about waste as a commodity in and of itself, right? Mm-hmm. Something in and of itself that gets bought and sold and traded, or when mm-hmm. the movement of waste stops, creates all kind of economic, social, political havoc, mm-hmm. right? So I'm thinking mm-hmm. of um, sanitation worker strikes that happen all the time, particularly mm-hmm. in southern Italy, which is well known for that, but in other places around the world, mm-hmm. um, and also the way that waste gets bought and sold and moved, and the expense of moving moving it or disposing of it and what does disposing of it mean does disposing of it mean mm-hmm. moving mm-hmm. it elsewhere or liquefying it mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. right but I think I'm, I'm running in multiple different tangents here but I think it, it would be helpful to me if you could perhaps address mm-hmm. that directly right what mm-hmm. happens or how does it change our own notions of what is a commodity and what is value or what is mm-hmm. of value mm-hmm. when we think of waste itself as a commodity yeah, 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 absolutely. So I think uh, what I'm interested in partly is the ways in which... Uh, so uh, um, uh, Arjuna Padarai talks about regimes of value uh, and commodity contexts, and these are the, you know, the cultural relationships that people have that make a thing valuable and exchangeable. Uh, and you know, one of the problems we face is that there's a singular regime of value which everybody is uh, subjected to increasingly around the world, which is um, capitalist commodity exchange. But, uh, you know, one of the interventions that anthropology makes is it says, look, people, things and places uh, are valued in vastly different ways in vastly different contexts. Uh, And actually, if you look closely, each of those different contexts sort of bumps up against and informs each other. You know, so it, there are a whole range of overlapping regimes of value or commodity contexts. Uh, and to understand one, we have to understand the ways in which they bump up against the other. Uh, so Anna Singh's done some really interesting work looking at how the commodity becomes a commodity in the first place. Uh, and she's writing about uh, mushrooms, the, the international trade in mushrooms. Uh, and by the end of the commodity chain, the mushroom has been... Uh, bought, sold, sorted dozens of times and it has been classed into different grades of mushroom with different uh, different prices, different exchange values. But it starts off uh, in this very different kind of uh, set of relationships. And the mushrooms are gathered, they're foraged uh, and there's, there's always some, something of a sort of gift economy that makes that possible. Well, that's her argument. So, you, in essence, she's saying you couldn't have the the mushroom as commodity without also having the mushroom as gift earlier on in the chain. Uh, and I think the same thing's true of waste. You know, there are all of these different ways that we value people, places, and things uh, that all sort of bump up against and, and, and inform each other. So when a thing stops being a commodity in one set of relationships... Uh, it still it, it might have exchange value in a different set of relationships. It might not be monetary exchange value. It might be sentimental value. 
Um, it might be political value. Mm. Uh, and, you know, so the sanitation worker strikes uh, trade on the kind of political negative value of, um, of visible waste. You know, it has this really visceral uh, aesthetic sort of political capital attached to it. Um, and that's different from its monetary exchange value. Mm. But they bump up against each other and they can be used to sort of leverage each other. Mm. Uh, and Michael Thompson is a, another uh, theorist of waste who talks about uh, these sort of submerged kinds of values. So, And he, he talks a lot about kitsch and antiques, things that uh, lose monetary value over time, uh, but then they develop these other kinds of values. Uh, you know, sentimental value, uh, you know, larger sort of cultural significances uh, that, that they hang on to and eventually that earns them uh, exchange value in a different time, in a different place. So these things become sort of fungible. It's almost like you can, you can trade uh, one value for another, for another, for another and eventually, you know, like speculating in currency, eventually you can speculate and mm. come back around to making... Uh, you know, making exchange value or making a profit again. Uh, well, I was going to say, so speaking of political value, I thought this might be a good time to talk about biopolitics. Yes! Which is a word that uh, is everywhere and nowhere. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was wondering if you could tell us maybe a little bit about what biopolitics is and mm -hmm. how it relates to, uh, maybe we should talk about issues of homelessness as well as yep. Yep. issues of uh, food waste. Yeah, well, it's a good point. Uh, you know, I, often, oh. I was just going to interject, and that's mm. a better question than the one that I was going to ask. So I appreciate <laughs> you interjecting. Um, but if, if I could tag on to the end of that sentence, mm -hmm. um, getting us to talk directly about biopolitics and how it's related to um, these notions of both morality and hygiene, mm -hmm. and how biopolitics helps us or doesn't help us think through that relationship. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and in, in answer to both of those questions, I think the, one of the biggest things that, that makes biopolitics important to me is it reminds me that we live in bodies. You know, value is a really abstract, you know, by definition, value is a really abstract thing. It's this kind of subjective quantity that we can all exchange, you know, whether it's monetary value or whether it's sentimental value. Uh, but our values then impact what, uh, where things uh, circulate and it impacts where people circulate and what we can and can't do with our bodies. So, uh, you know, biopolitics to me is uh, it's the way in which our larger sort of abstract systems of governance, and I don't just mean government, uh, I guess uh, in the, you know, in Foucault's sense I mean governmentality or, you know, for people who haven't read Foucault, I just mean these larger sort of systems that affect how we conduct ourselves, these larger cultural and political systems of thought that affect what we let ourselves do, who we do it with, etc. So these are these sort of large abstract systems that we live in. Uh, and biopolitics, to me, is the way in which those large abstract political systems are built on uh, concrete habits uh, and practices of the body. The really concrete, short way of saying it is that biopolitics is the way in which the larger social body is governed through governing the physical body. Uh, so biopolitics is all about deciding 
what kinds of life we value, what kinds of life we want to cultivate, uh, uh, what kinds of citizen uh, we want to support, uh, uh, what kinds of life ought to be done away with, ought to be managed, ought to be, ought to be consigned to the margins. Uh, so there are all these really, really concrete policies that dictate what sorts of lives we permit, what sorts of lives we authorise and what sorts of lives we don't. Uh, we authorise lives that are perceived to be clean, lives that are perceived to be uh, healthy, that lives that are perceived to be efficient. Above all, we authorise lives that are perceived to be productive, economically productive. So, you know, we, we support, we uh, endorse workers and consumers by and large. And if you're not working or consuming, uh, then there are a whole range of practices you might live on that are consigned to the margins. So this affects people who are homeless because they're perceived not to be consuming, they're perceived to be using public space the wrong way, uh, and then the ways in which they use their bodies in public space are, uh, are punished, um, are made invisible, you know, so in, in the city of Melbourne right now, for example, there is a, a, a set of bylaws that are being... It's under public comment. Uh, in the middle of March, they'll be, um, they'll be decided upon, which make it illegal to sleep publicly, uh, illegal to, to sleep rough. Mm. You know, it's a very concrete thing about what you can and can't do with your body. It's all about whose lives are valuable, whose lives are perceived to be... Is that unusual abject. in the world or unique in the world? Are there uh, other... I think these laws are more and more and more common. You know, anywhere where there are these different forms of life, with these different, if you want to say, different kinds of economic behaviours. Some people going to work, coming back, paying rent for a house, and some people uh, living on the streets. Uh, anywhere where they are competing for the same spaces, you find variations of this kind of law uh, pushed through. And, you know, some of them make it illegal to sleep, some of them make it illegal to camp, some of them make it illegal to urinate or uh, to beg um, or to share food. All of these things are about controlling who can do what with their bodies. Uh, and they all have the effect of uh, pushing people who are homeless, they all have the effect of pushing these people to the, to the margins and making them invisible. So that, that's why biopolitics is important. It's about whose lives are perceived to be valuable and what they can and can't do with their bodies. What drew me to anthropology in the first place uh, was that anthropology pays attention to these embodied issues. Anthropology, uh, you know, unlike, for example, economics, uh, which operates exclusively in the realm of these kind of abstract systems of value, uh, anthropology pays attention to the body, pays attention to who's allowed to do what, where, with their bodies, and so anthropology, in a way, has always been politically engaged, and has always been biopolitically engaged, even if it's, even if it hasn't always admitted it. Uh, and and so, I think I came to anthropology because I intuited early on that there was a politics to anthropology and a politics to what was possible in anthropology, um, and and it asks us. Anthropology, I think, inherently asks us to, to see and be seen as humans. It inherently asks us to reckon with other people in other bodies. Uh, and I think the politics of that is incredibly powerful still and incredibly necessary still.
Thanks for listening to the Deacon Anthropology Podcast. I'm Timothy Neal, and I was with Sabra Thorner talking to David Border-Giles. You can find out more about David's work at dhbordergiles.wordpress.com. You can find out more about Deacon Anthropology at blogs.deacon.edu.au slash anthropology, or like us on Facebook.